Uh, let's stand. We're going to sing a couple of songs uh, to start with. Come behold uh, the wondrous mystery. Love. 
gives up on me. Carries me back to you, Jesus, my redeemer. You have made a as we're standing. Uh, Father, these are just wonderful things for us to sing before you tonight. As we prepare our hearts to jump into another season of looking deeply into your word, not so that we can expand our our intellect, but that we might truly be uh, more devoted and um, dedicated worshipers, followers, servants of you. Um, Lord, thank you that we can gather tonight. Thank you that we're back at it. And uh, we just ask for your blessing and your guidance upon all of us uh, at this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. And uh, as 
Uh, Dave said so excitedly, welcome back to uh, Sunday nights, welcome back to uh, what we're doing with Foundations, and uh, we're jumping into another season of um, digging into some essential Christian doctrine uh, together. And um, we're going to be looking first off uh, as we get into this in this season at uh, what the work of Christ and what he's done for us, which reflects some of the songs uh, we've sung tonight. Last, um, last time around, we finished looking at who is Jesus, the person of Christ. Now we're going to be looking at how that sets us up for what he's actually done for us. Uh, a few weeks in, we're also going to be looking at uh, the role of the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do. Um, when we think about what Jesus has done for us, our minds probably automatically jump to the cross, which is a good place uh, to jump to. But I'm just going to slow down the bus a little bit tonight um, to focus intentionally on some uh, different ways for us to understand the person and work of Jesus, one of which we sang about um, tonight. Uh, in the first song that we sang. I don't know if you remember, there's a line we sang in there. I think it's called, See the, the True and Better Adam. I don't know if you picked up on that line, but that's a theme that we're going to pick up on tonight, that the work of Jesus can be understood through his being the second Adam or the last Adam. And then we're going to look at, if you look on your sheets, you can look ahead and see, we're going to look at the work of Jesus being understood through his fulfillment of three distinct roles or function, that of prophet priest and king. Now, some of you may have heard of some of this before. Some of you are saying this is all completely new. doesn't matter where you land on that uh, continuum, where I hope we end up with at the end of you understanding why this matters and how it fuels our response to him uh, from our hearts. Um, so the work of Jesus being understood through his being a second Adam. So if you were here in the autumn, uh, if, you were, if you weren't, we did an overview called God's Big Picture. And we began in that big picture, moving from the beginning through to the end of a, a world created by God in which Adam and Eve were given the perfect environment to enjoy this unhindered relationship with God and with one another. They were, as we said, God's people in God's place, living and enjoying being under God's rule. And if Adam obeyed, he would have continued to live in this blessed arrangement. It wasn't something he had to earn as if God said, well, if you can just measure up in these ways, I will allow you to live in this perfect environment. God graciously had just given it to him. And yet he gave him one prohibition. He didn't have to earn it. He had it. The question was, would he keep it? And we know as we went through the book of Genesis, the story of creation, paradise was lost when Adam rejected and he uh, usurped God's rule. He rejected that one prohibition of not eating the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He chose to disobey and eat the fruit from the tree. And Adam's fall, his disobedience and fall condemned him and all of his posterity, you, me, and every human being that will ever live on the face of the earth to alienation and condemnation from God. There's a solidarity in his sin 
that impacts the entire human race. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture tonight. It should be in your notes. I think it'll be on the screen. I'm going to test a new piece of kit right now and see if it works. Did it switch? It didn't. Oh, there it is. Yes. This is great. You don't know how excited I am about this. This probably doesn't impact your night at all. It impacts my my life dramatically. Um, But Romans chapter 5, verses 15 to 19. As we look at these verses, we're going to see, as we read it, a clear connection between Jesus and Adam, but also a stark contrast. So let's look at these verses uh, together. The red that I've put in there, just highlighting the things that are associated with Adam's sin, what we just talked about. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? I don't know if your ears picked up as we read through that passage the number of times it said the one, the one, the one, the one, and how the many are impacted by the actions of one. In this case, the one Adam, meaning the Adam we were just speaking about. But there's also another one in this passage. And I just want to skip to another slide to highlight that one in blue. Because there is a connection, they're both one, but there's a complete contrast into what each of them secures and accomplishes by their one action. So as we read through this, and you see in the red there that many died by the trespass of the one man, there's the comparison and contrast to Jesus. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And it goes on through the end of the passage again where it says, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So there is this clear connection, but also that stark contrast between Adam's failure and Christ succeeding in securing what Adam lost for humanity. For all of us, Jesus is like another Adam, a second Adam, a a last Adam who gets it right where Adam failed and provides a way of rescue and restoration. And so the reason I'm laying this groundwork for us getting to the cross is it's essential. Sometimes we like to jump to the cross because like that's what applies to me and it does and wonderfully it does for, for all of us but intentionally kind of laying this groundwork out for a broader and fuller picture of who Jesus is and what his work accomplished for us. So he's like a second Adam. He gets it right, and he will bring uh, rescue, restoration, and renewal. So there's one way as we start looking forward toward the cross in future weeks to think of Jesus in this way and what he's doing. Uh, But the second, maybe more unfamiliar, is the work of Jesus being understood through his fulfillment of three distinct 
roles or functions. See, in the Old Testament, there were three offices or roles in the life of ancient Israel. And each of these roles performed a particular function. These three offices or roles were the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, the role of the prophet was a revelatory one in the Old Testament. So the prophet spoke as God's messenger, revealing him and his will to God's people, to the people. The role of the priest was reconciling, representing the people before God, offering sacrifices, facilitating worship, interceding for them. And the role of the king was to rule and reign as God's representative to his people on earth. Now, these roles were never held uh, by one individual. They were held by different individuals at different times in the Old Testament. As an American, I could say it's like the separation of powers. It's like the president and the Congress and the Supreme Court, right? So the prophets, the priests, the king. You can think of some of the names of the prophets. Moses, Samuel, Nathan, Isaiah. Isaiah. Priests. Aaron, Eleazar, Phineas, and the kings, maybe some of them, they're easy for us to remember. Saul, David, Solomon. These offices were distinct, and the individuals who held them held only one. I think one of the most powerful portrayals of this in the Old Testament is found, we won't go there, uh, but it's when Nathan, the prophet, confronts David, the king, uh, about his sin with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The role of the prophet being the voice of God of authority to the king who's supposed to be his representative on earth. In the person and work of Jesus, there is the fulfillment of all of these roles in one person. Jesus operates as prophet, he operates as priest, and he operates as king. He reveals, he reconciles, and he rules. So let's just talk a little bit about how Jesus, how does Jesus function as prophet? And as we consider this question, we would do uh, well to consider a passage found in the book of Deuteronomy. I'll put this up on the screen. I'm sorry, I don't have them labeled on the screen, but I promise you this is Deuteronomy. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 18, which I believe is listed on your handouts if you're trying to connect the dots. <clears throat> and this is obviously written in regards to Moses, the people of Israel. And it says, the Lord your God, this is Moses saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him, for this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Now, these words of Moses, as found in the book of Deuteronomy, contributed to an expectation in Israel, not only of a steady stream of human messengers sent by God, which you see throughout all the, you know, the writings of the Old Testament, but also of one prophet, the prophet, if you'd like to say it that way, who would reveal God in fulfillment 
of Moses' prophecy. And it was this expectation as we, again, move forward to the New Testament. If we lay the template of what we covered in God's big picture, if you remember in our Bible overview, we said everything moves from the Old Testament from promise through to fulfillment. And sometimes the fulfillment just busts through the categories we had of the Old Testament to an even greater and grander fulfillment in Jesus. And this expectation was highlighted in Peter's words in Acts chapter 3. Just set the context for Acts chapter 3, which I'll put on the, on the screen here momentarily. But Peter and, and John, there's the man who had been healed, and they start sharing about how this man was healed in the name of Jesus. And they said this as part of that interaction with the people who were there. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Does sound familiar? You must listen to everything he tells you. And so Peter is connecting this expectation of the prophet who will reveal the Father through to Jesus. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. So to reject the revelation that this one brings puts you uh, in, terrible, uh, in terrible stead. It says, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days, and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. So here's the the fulfillment coming. And he said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he's referring to here, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And so he's saying Jesus was prophetic in his role in a, in a climactic kind of way in revealing uh, God to the people and in calling them to himself. Jesus uniquely also fulfilled the office of prophet, think about this, in that he embodied both the medium and the subject matter. You see, what do I mean by that? He embodied the medium. He was a human being. This is when we think about Jesus as a person being fully 100% God and fully 100% man combined together in the one man Jesus. I know that was last time and it rattles our categories, but it's important as we come to this because Jesus is fully man, the medium, if you will, but he's also the subject matter. He speaks with absolute authority. The prophets were humans who spoke with authority from God Jesus spoke with authority, being both fully human and fully God. So all the Old Testament prophets, everything they spoke, pointed forward in fulfillment to Jesus. Jesus reveals God as prophet. But how did he function as a priest? How did Jesus function as a priest? The role of the priest, as I just mentioned briefly when I introduced all this, was to represent the people before God, offering sacrifices for their sins and interceding for the people. And this aspect of Jesus' life and ministry is significantly, significantly developed in the book of Hebrews that we're going to be going through on Sunday mornings in, in just a short while here at King's Church. And if we were to go to Hebrews chapter 5 tonight, I'll put this up on the screen, we'll just highlight some things in this passage about the priesthood of Jesus, how he was prophet, this we're looking at priest. Hebrews chapter 5 beginning at verse 1 says, every high priest, thinking back to the Old Testament, 
is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. So let's just, oh, I got to do this tonight. Ready? I've been given a new toy and I'm going to try it. Ready? To represent the people. Did you see that? Did it work? No. It's because I have the eraser on. That's why it didn't work. Ready? To represent the people. Yay! <laughs> we have fun at foundations, don't we? <laughs> right? This is the role of the priest, to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant. Don't you love being called ignorant, right? And are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to, ready? There it is again. He has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And Jesus fulfills the role of priest in a way that is far superior than to any other priest who came before him who did this. And this is, again, a, a, a phrase you're going to hear in Hebrews is preview, is Jesus is, is more, he's better, how much more? This was what the Old Testament gave us and gave us in a foreshadowing way looking forward and the fulfillment comes in Jesus and he just busts all the barriers and fulfills it in a grand way. Let me show you this in Hebrews chapter 7. How then takes this and, and relates it to Jesus. Now there have, been, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. So he just highlighted what the role of the Old Testament priest was in representing the people before God and offering sacrifices and interceding for them, identifying with them. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. They were just people. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He's a better priest, a better sacrifice. He serves us in a better way than they ever could because he represents us before God in this way like a priest. Jesus opened the way for us to come to God without hindrance or fear in a way that those other priests never could. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a priest who intercedes and prays for us. I was thinking about this this afternoon and I read a quote from an old theology book I had from Bible college days and it was just an amazing quote that I read in another theologian's work and I was thinking oh, I need to go right to the source and he says this it is a consoling thought that he Jesus is presenting to the father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers 
Isn't it amazing, you know, as a church, we say we pray before we act, right? We value prayer. It's why we pray before our services in the morning. A few of us just prayed up here briefly tonight, just even a brief prayer to God to bless us and to be with us. But it's amazing to think, Jesus prays for you. He intercedes for you. He, he prays for things that you don't even know what to pray about. If you're a parent, right, and your, parents, your, your kids are asking you for things and they want things, and as a parent, you know, you, you intercede for them, you, you pray for them, and they don't even realize what they want or what they should want. And he says the things that aren't even our minds which we often neglect. And then it says he prays for protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. You see how important it is that Jesus is both fully human and fully God as our priest. How he can represent us before him, pure, blameless, offer, our, offer himself in our place, pure and blameless, and identify with our weakness so that he can help us and intercede for us. So he fulfills that revelatory role of prophet. He reveals God. He fulfills the reconciling role of priest. He represents us before God. But how does Jesus fulfill the role of king? How does Jesus fulfill the role of king? There's just a little activity going on around a, a king lately, isn't there? Um, if you travel around London or anywhere on the, on the news, online, wherever you find it, on, on the 6th of May, there's something happening that's pretty significant. Um, pretty fascinating for me as an American. You know, we don't do this coronation thing. We do inaugurations, and it's, it's, it's exciting for us to be here and to see this and to share in it. The United Kingdom will have its first coronation in nearly 70 years. The investiture, I love that. I just got to say, that is such a British word. Investiture. Americans will not use it. The investiture of King Charles with all the powers of royalty. Our family has gone to uh, the Tower of London, you know, and you, you see all the, the different uh, symbols of, of power, of royalty, of monarchy there and the jewels and even just, you know, the different... Uh, palaces and stuff uh, around, around the nation. And as the 6th of May comes, all the ceremony, right, the symbolism um, of that day is designed to evoke majesty, sovereignty, the sovereignty of the monarch of the United Kingdom. It's like, here it is, all on display. We, in, we invested in this individual. Ancient Israel had a monarchy, and it, too, had similar symbols of authority connected with the rule and reign of the king. And it's this monarchy that would play an essential role in restoring God's blessing and rule and establishing his kingdom on earth, that promise to fulfillment. And it moves through, and it moves through this vehicle of, of monarchy. I don't have these verses to share with you on the screen, but they're familiar probably to us, particularly around Christmas time. And we have, I think, used them before uh, when we looked at the person of Christ. If not, I know we definitely looked at them in God's big picture. But Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to open to Isaiah chapter 9 in your Bibles, I'll open to it in mine 
as well. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this, this connects this human monarchy in, in ancient Israel with God's kingdom and his promise and fulfillment of his rule and reign coming in its ultimate fulfillment. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called <clears throat> Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So remember, we're moving from promise to fulfillment as we move from Old Testament to New Testament. And the context of this is very much a human monarchy, but it's taking that human monarchy, and if you want to use the word investiture again, it's investing it with even greater significance and potential of what it's going to bring about because Jesus fulfills the role of king beyond the scope of any ancient or modern human monarch. With what he brings in, he is the king of kings, as Revelation calls him, over a new and restored people of God, those who belong to him as their king through faith. Is why as a church we've also said that we exist to invite all people into this ever-growing relationship with our king, King Jesus. He's a king. He's a true king. And we're his people. But why does this matter? This idea of right, Jesus being king, Jesus being priest, Jesus being prophet, second Adam, all these things. Why don't we just get straight to what does this do for me? Because I want to break you of that. I want you to think of him and his greatness and his majesty and take all of that and this big sweeping arc of God's work in this world and then say, my goodness, he loves me? I somehow fit into this? My hope is intention in taking this approach is we're going to cultivate a richer understanding of who he is and what he's done. I want to read these uh, verses from Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> verses 18 to 22. It's a little bit of an extended passage, so if you want to turn there, we have time. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. A great way for us to end, and in a way, be our prayer as we consider now pressing forward to the cross, but also to some other doctrines that are going to challenge us. We're going to have our, our brains stretched again. But I pray as our understanding is stretched that our capacity to love him and wonder and worship before him will also be stretched. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, and think of these royal terms, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, we could pray for ourselves tonight. The eyes of our heart would be enlightened. That we would understand who you are. In this passage, your majesty, your power, that power that worked in raising you from the grave, that is at work in us as your people under your rule. You're our king, and we rule and reign with you by your grace and your goodness. Lord, there's so much to this that we could unpack. We've just scratched the surface, but I pray it's enough to cultivate a response to you that is perhaps maybe a little bit deeper, a little bit more thoughtful, and results, Lord, that we walk through this life with just a a little bit more intention and deliberate choice that we don't just find ourselves being carried along by the current of the day. Help us to lift up our eyes to you. Help us to see you, the true and better Adam, and what you've accomplished for us at the cross. So please just bless us now, Lord, as we continue in some singing together, that in that singing our hearts would continue to resonate with the truths that we've talked about but most importantly, that you would draw us closer into the life that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the band's going to come, and as they lead us, let's, uh, let's stand and sing. going to sing a couple of songs, uh, some lovely words in this uh, first song at the end. It says, lift your voices to the one who is seated on the throne. See him in the new Jerusalem. Praise the one who saved us. Let's uh, stand and let's sing together.